What's up, everybody? We're back. It's Hit Factory. My name is Aaron. My name is Carly. And today, we are honored and privileged to have a very special guest on the show. Film writer Brandon Streisnig is here. Brandon, welcome to Hit Factory. Thanks so much for having me. It's been kind of a long time coming because I think we've been trying to work something out for a while. That's true. Yeah, we have been discussing, I think, on multiple different occasions. There was uh, a potential monthly theme for this month that fell through. I'm not going to say what it is because we'll (laughs) probably be doing it somewhere down the line. Um, But that also didn't come to fruition. Uh, And then we actually (laughs) had plans to have you on for a different movie um, (laughs) before I suggested that we have you on to talk about this particular film today, just because it's part of the cultural conversation at the moment and because uh, the director has returned to this property for a an HBO miniseries uh, that's currently on air in, in like its like third episode as of tonight or tomorrow, something like that. Uh, but uh, the movie in question is Olivier Assayas's 1996 masterpiece, Irma Vep, um, and one that I am very, very excited to talk about. It is a film brimming with ideas. We're going to try to do the best we can in roughly... 90 minutes, two hours, and see what we come up with. Um, But I'm sure we won't get to all of it. Uh, I'm always curious at the beginning of these conversations, Brandon, what your experience with Irma Vep is, was, how you came to it initially, how it's evolved over the years. Um, Well, I probably came to it, I want to say 2014, which is a little later than most people, but it's when I saw Clouds of Sils Maria, and that was the first Asayas movie I had seen, and I loved that movie. And because I think most people know I'm like a huge Kristen Stewart fan, so like I I loved Clouds, and I was like I need to see more by this guy. And everything that I was reading up on was telling me to see Irma Vep. So I sought that out and was just like completely, just like kind of taken aback at the time. I couldn't really process it, and I try to rewatch it every year, every couple years. And so I actually rewatched it fairly recently and it just like really opens up for me every time. Um, I'm kind of just a little in awe of it because the, I, I've said this a few times over the years, just I, I never think about it this way, but in the moment I think it might be the best movie ever made <laughs> um, <laughs> just because I feel like it's taking everything about cinema and just kind of like, just shooting it at the screen like a grenade launcher it's it's just such a strange film that i can't ever get out of my head and so i it i would say it's probably his best movie even though it's probably not my favorite of his it's it's definitely his best i i came to it even later than you brandon i just saw it for the first time earlier this year oh nice uh, this was this was my second watch this time around but i had a similar sensation where uh, I knew of its legacy. I knew quite a bit about Asayas, even if I had never really seen any of his movies um, and knew if I wanted to kind of start engaging with his films, why not start here? This is a good place to kind of understand uh, him and his work and kind of use it as a roadmap to get into other things. And I had the same feeling right away where I kind of asked myself, like, uh, is, the, is this the greatest movie about movie making ever made? Or is this just like the greatest movie ever made? It was, <laughs> it was so br- like it, it was one of those movies where I started kind of sitting back in my seat and putting it on and, and seeing how it would, how it would kind of take advantage of me. And by the end of it, my eyes were like 10, 10 inches in front of the screen. I was, I could not, 
stop watching it. It just like made me sit upright and just like shook something in me. I, th- I think it's a fantastic movie. Uh, but this is Carly's very first time watching it. So I'm oh, also curious awesome. about her experience. Yes, I'm the latest and the rubiest of all three of us. Um, <laughs> Rube as in Rube, not Ruby. Uh, yeah, I just watched this film for the first time ever uh, two nights ago. Um, can't stop thinking about it. Um, and I think we were talking, you know, just before we started recording Brandon and you had mentioned how every time you watch this movie, there's like more for you to consider and more that opens up for you. And um, I just really like that there is a thing that can do that. Um, I think that a lot of artifacts that are made now in any medium don't do that. Um, and so it it's been really pleasurable coming to something that has so much contained in it, but also that so many things can spin out of it um, and ideas and conversations can come from it. I think that uh, regardless of where you land about, you know, what this movie is about or what it's saying, I don't think that's the point. I think like the fact that we can have these conversations and have different perspectives is um, like the most nourishing thing about the film. Yeah, definitely. And I I like too that the conversations it's having are still like so salient right now. Like it's talking a lot of shit on Batman Returns and the Batman franchise, (laughs) a movie that I love, but it's like in, in all these years later, I mean, that's the only conversation we seem to be having is about those kinds of movies. And it's just funny that it was like, he was kind of on the pulse of that in 1996. Mm -hmm. So much so that in the show, I mean, I don't know how much we're going to talk about the show and I didn't get to see all of it but there's a funny bit i think in the second episode where she's uh her manager uh alicia vikander's manager is like asking her to quit the show to do a silver surfer reboot and it's just funny that he (laughs) keeps coming back to that thing and it seems to be like stuck in his craw in a way that i'm not sure is I, i don't even know if it's cynical sometimes i just think it's him just wondering about the medium but the thing about pulling things out of it um one thing I thought on my more recent watches is when I saw it for the first time, I knew who Maggie Chung was, but I wasn't like aware of her history. And so the way they treat her in this movie is really strange. They 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 treat her as if she's a nobody sometimes. When she shows up in the office, it's just kind of like, oh, there's Maggie Chung. But then as like I've gotten older and seen more of her work, um, it's just kind of funny how this movie approaches her because she was a megastar in 1996 and yes. it's just like yeah. it's so kind of funny now having her history ingrained in me and like seeing some of her hong kong work and it's just very strange how i i, I still try to figure out what point essayus is making with that why they treat her so superfluously but um it's just really interesting to me i was wondering if you guys had any thoughts on that because it's really it's kind of jarring I will start by saying, and this is a good segue into kind of the the, the first sort of idea that I was thinking about when I, I came to this movie and, and as I was uh, considering it this time, which is it's a, a film that in a lot of ways is about multiple crises of identity. Uh, that's diegetically and also metatextually as well, right? It's a say it's reckoning with uh, film and, and the commercialization of it and the globalization of it. Also, these characters, Maggie herself, 
uh, Jean-Pierre Loud's character, um, Rene Vidal in here as well, all having these sort of like crises of faith almost about who they are and what position they occupy within the greater context of cinema around the world. And I think that that part is really crucial. I think that lack of consideration of Maggie Chung <laughs> kind of shows in some ways, maybe the the insularity of French cinema up to that point. You know, this, yeah. is, this is a movie that is very concerned with uh, ideas of globalization, ideas of film commercialization and the ways in which like a, a, a mid 90s sort of neoliberal order was creating all of these avenues and, and alleyways to new modes and new meanings of expression that people had access to more readily. And so I, I think it's it's maybe one of the biggest slights and outright criticisms Assayas makes of French film and, and of the industry. Um, because a lot of it, as we were mentioning, I think even before we recorded, is uh, Assayas reckoning with these things from a, a place of, I think, genuine curiosity rather than cynicism. But in this particular moment, I think that he does kind of have this, uh, he, he has a little bit of a, a, a mean bent here and kind of is acknowledging <laughs> the ways in which uh, stars from other cinemas from around the world would be regarded as nobodies or wouldn't be considered um, even within the landscape of, of French production. I think related to that, what what I took from that handling of Maggie is that Essayus is almost saying like look at the ways in which these two things are the same the commodification you're deriding in you know uh this sort of like capitalist churn of movie making in America those mechanisms are still in play here these actresses are still treated like objects very much in the same way um that they are elsewhere in in this landscape that you are saying we here in France, uh, the movies we make are better than those things. I, I very, I very clearly felt that, um, that tie. And I also think that, um, and this is thanks to an interview Aaron shared with me with Assayas himself from a couple of years ago, where he's talking about his films and specifically Irma Vep, where he asked the question when he was thinking about Maggie Chung in real life, like, what is a movie star anymore? Like, what does it mean to be a movie star? And if you're incredibly famous in one country, but nobody knows you in this really, like, you know, insular film landscape in another country, are you famous at all? Like, <laughs> and I think that question is one that he doesn't necessarily try to answer, but he does tee up for us. Yeah, and it's funny, too, because she's almost, in a lot of scenes, reduced to just being exoticized by people, especially mm -hmm. Zoe. And yes. it's and it's and it's just so funny to watch the dynamic she has with everyone else because everyone's running around just having these existential crises like about everything, and Maggie almost seems just like above all of it. Like she's just there doing her job, and it's just so funny not to. I do do we do spoilers? Uh, Absolutely, that, spoil okay. away. Spoil away. Not to jump straight to the end, but it's just so funny to me that like they're still racking their brains trying to figure out what this movie is going to be, and she's just gone. She's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go do something else because like she's so secure in who, who she is, and I think that there's just something so funny about how all of these people have these big ideas of, of what cinema is, what their place in it is, and Maggie Chung's like, I know who I am. Like you guys have fun with this, and yeah. it's just it's so fun to watch that because she. I think in a way that really does show 
how big of a star she is because she's just like so comfortable in herself. It's just such a full-bodied, realized performance. I just, I can't get over how good she is. But you, really quickly, before I forget, I think, Aaron, you were mentioning um, just the the idea of um, what French cinema is and how insular it is. I think that it's really funny how there's that interview that she does with that film critic. And he like, first it comes off as his point is, it's funny how Assayas is making two points there because yeah, French cinema is insular and and that critic's kind of calling it out. But then he slowly reverts into like the typical, like, cause he says something about like Hong Kong movies being violent. And I think she says something about, you know, like, well, there are all kinds of films and, and he's like, well, no, what about John Woo? Like, that's what I want to talk about. And it's funny that <laughs> if, if you go on Twitter right now, everyone is talking about a movie I love, RRR, but mm-hmm. all they seem to talk about is how, like, that's, like, one kind of Indian movie. And it seems like there's no engagement with more Indian cinema. And it's just funny that – it's just so funny how many layers – layers um, essayists – puts into this film to where you almost start agreeing with this film critic like yes French French cinema needs to get out of its own head and explore other things but then he only he only wants to focus on one kind of Hong Kong film it's just funny and it you know it draws into question too I think the holistic quality or lack thereof of world cinema and the way that it's shared in this sort of like global market right and why things find purchase in other countries in other sort of cinematic ideologies and aesthetic ideologies, right? Where uh, I think RRR stakes out a very particular kind of place and and has carved out a foothold for itself with American audiences um, because of the ways in which its action seems uh, directly opposed to a lot of the mundane kind of bombast of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and things like that. And it also has an interesting kind of political nature to it, too. It, it, it doesn't shy away from these concepts of like revolution um, and and things that I think are very sort of in vogue with a more kind of progressive uh, like left or, or even like left of center uh, audience in in America. You know, and, and so I think that there is certainly a commentary there, too, that this uh, critic or this interviewer who's talking with Maggie Chung wants to talk about John Woo and its distinction and, and the way it's separate from French cinema without recognizing that there are lots of movies uh, that come out of Hong Kong that are very similar in many ways in terms of their modes of expression, their qualities, their sort of aesthetic uh, endeavors to what's coming out in France as well. Like there, there is a lot of similarity across the board with these things, um, but he's only finding the most sort of distinct examples to draw from. Right, right. And, and it's just so interesting to me how Assayas kind of pegs that almost 20 years ago and we're still having mm-hmm. these conversations because you see people like, oh, Hollywood could never do this. And it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. maybe that's true. But also India is a massive country with a massive film industry making all kinds of movies, a lot of them very bad. I've seen a lot of them. And so it's just I, funny. I have ventured down that rabbit hole myself recently on Netflix <laughs> and I have found as many bad as good. Yes. Yeah. And it's just so funny that I think I think with Maggie Chung, he's kind of using part of her celebrity as a means of showing how when we prop something up that's like quote unquote foreign, we 
we might be doing it with good intentions, like, you know, look at this star or this movie, it's so different from what we get. But there isn't, a, like, we do kind of exoticize things when we don't reckon with the fact that, you know, there's, she's been in a ton of bad movies, you know, she, this country makes a ton of bad movies. So it just, it feels almost um, performative in some ways. And I, <clears throat> I like that say it's kind of, it's just really with all the conversations we're having in 2022 about international cinema, watching this movie today or last night, I mean, um, it was really interesting to kind of see him having those conversations because it was, stuff that I had obviously picked up on before, but never to the extent that I had last night where I was like, wow, like this feels like it could have been made today, which is why I'm sure he's remaking it. And yeah, and it almost feels like you could remake this every 20 years and the conversations might not ever change too much. Yeah. I, we were having this exact conversation this morning um, prior to recording that like, it feels like the questions he's asking or at least considering in this film are questions that remain the same, even though the sort of content that we're exploring sort of in and around the questions may change, but that those ideas are still uh, incredibly salient. As you, as you mentioned, I was thinking along those same lines about the idea of remaking or rebooting or like interacting with, properties that are already in existence and already have a pretty established um, place in sort of like filmic history, but also in, in pop cultural, um, in our pop cultural landscape. And that he's, you know, asking questions about like, how does a, a, a director work with and comment on uh, a really well-tread property does he, you know, do so in a way that's incredibly traditional? Does he do so in a way that's completely thwarting the thing? Does he have a right to do it at all? And all of these questions are things that come up on Twitter, like literally every day about every <laughs> fucking thing that's being made, right? Um, but what I appreciate about, about his exploration there is it it made me sort of reflect on my own posture around like reboots because it's easy for me now with the proliferation of them and this, you know, this constant complaint we have that there isn't anything new being made. Um, Asaius in making this film and sort of asking the question of like, what is new and where do we go to make new things? Um, he made me think about like sort of changing my uh, my sort of automatic like revulsion toward the idea of a reboot or a remake because I think he demonstrates that there are ways that you can use ideas and images and characters and stories and properties from the past um, and pay homage to them, but also make something that is a completely new experience um, that engenders new ideas and uh, and that a reboot or a sequel or a remake doesn't have to always be, you know, such a dead end. This is why. This is the reason. You understand what I say? It's because I saw you in a very, very cheap cinema in Marrakesh. They showed this in Marrakesh? 
Yeah, and you, you are like a dancer and also like an acrobat. You know, and this scene is very, very beautiful, like floating in the air. Thank you. But really, they were just stunned by stunts. <laughs> you know, when the TV came to me and asked me to make a remake of Live on Pier, I think they are out of their mind. I asked me to do Le Vampire. We forgot it in 1915, very simple and manic. <laughs> like two chips. They insist. Then I think not a French actress can be Emma Webb after Mesidora. It's impossible, it's blasphemy. But I tell them maybe. I have an idea, you know. Maybe I have an idea. You, you can be on my web because you have the grace. I tell them I can do the film if you do the part. Big discussion. Everybody say to me, why you ask a Chinese actress? Why a Chinese actress? But I am sure nobody else can do it because I saw you in this film. You are mysterious like you're my web. You are beautiful like Emma Webb, and also you are magic like her. And also you are very strong, and it's very important you are modern. I want a modern Emma Webb. You know what I say? I think so. <laughs> I mean, in some ways, th this feels so hacky of me to say, but it does feel like with this movie and the conversations it's having with itself and the people in it, um, it almost feels like he kind of created film Twitter, like, and, um, <laughs> and, and it's so funny because he also kind of like, I mean, I'm sure this was happening in the past too. I mean, you had people writing hate mail about Michael Keaton playing Batman. So, I mean, I know that this kind of thing has always existed, but it's funny that he also in the director, Jose Moreno kind of had, he's like the, um, patient zero of all these insane YouTube channels that whenever someone's cast in a traditionally white role, it just turns into like full blown yes. racism. And it's just, yes. and it's so funny because the actress that he, that Jose Moreno prefers is just so boring and there's nothing interesting about her, but he's like, no, you are Irma Vep. You are like, you embody her. <laughs> and it's just, it's really funny that just, that it just, I, like I said, I pull something out of this movie every time I see it. And I always got that Assayas was making, statement on the inherent racism within french cinema mm -hmm. but now when anytime i mean every week we get a new tv show and a new movie that has a, a a black star in it and there's just endless discourse from the worst people on earth that are just like complaining about it and it's just interesting i, I how Assayas is like dunking on that all the, yes. all the so long ago absolutely yeah. this i think leads into an interesting conversation about the kind of sort of modes that uh, of, of artistic expression that Assayas is considering here. Um, there is Jose Morano, who is sort of the kind of, I would even call him traditionalist, almost reactionary kind of voice within French cinema in this yeah. movie, right? He is the one who is uh, a purist of the art form, a purist of the insularity of, of French cinema. He's 
allergic to the idea of this sort of transnational collaboration or representation within the films. Um, in many ways, I think that that is a commentary, as you said, Brandon, on on like the inherent racism of the industry, but also just like the the sort of kind of traditional reactionary mode of film appreciation of of being sort of um, averse to anything that has an experimental nature or anything that tries anything new. And likewise, you get an interesting kind of like foil to that in Zoe and some of her cohort who are doing something similar and having a same sort of kind of reactionary impulse to the influences that Renee is drawing in, but coming at it from a more sort of like militant and left wing approach yeah. where they are sort of regarding the the cinema of these sort of avant-garde experimentalists, specifically uh, Chris Marker, who's film uh class de loot shows up at one point in the movie um and 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 they are drawing from this history of a more kind of populist more political cinema and saying these are the stories we need to tell rather than the rehashes of the reboots the things that draw from hollywood and and are sort of empty and vacuous um and both of those things kind of challenge this idea of making an expression that is new and original within the framework of this sort of global capitalist structure and I think in Rene, he, Asseus kind of has like a perfect avenue to show the frustration with being unable to verbalize how you, not so much even verbalize how you how you want to go about doing this, but the, even just not being listened to. Because yes. you know, Rene, you can, even when he's speaking English, you can't, or even when he's speaking French, rather, he's still mumbling. He's not really making a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. And then in Jose Morano, you have someone who's, very vocal and and very expressive and he kind of represents the you know an industry that's unwilling to listen unwill you know take chances and it's just it's kind of sad in a way that that renee is so hard on himself <laughs> that that he thinks what he's doing is terrible and it's really the most when you finally see his cut it's the most interesting approach that anyone's had and it's just I, I just find that I hadn't thought about what you were saying, Aaron, with um, Zoe's crew, where they're just as opposed to what he's doing, but they're saying that it's like a cynically, creatively bankrupt thing to do, when really what he's doing is more exciting and more interesting than anything. And <laughs> what they're what it seems like they're advocating for is a kind of movie that's going to regurgitate your beliefs back to you. And they think that that's more creatively fulfilling. And that's just something that's like frustrates me to this day. There's so many movies that feel like they were made just for people to nod their heads and agree with. And it's funny how Zoe and her group think that it, that's the way cinema needs to go. And that that's just as boring as doing a straight remake. I mean, yeah, you're teeing up such a, such a, uh, important point for me that I drew from the character of Renee, which is that he is this kind of like third mode um, operating outside of, you know, the Murano character and Zoe's character. He is acknowledging the importance of the past and of films and ideas and um, pieces of art that have come before him. But he also wants to make something subversive and new. Um, the thing that Zoe claims she wants, right? Um, and he is able to utilize a, a property that already exists 
and still do something that is revelatory um, and uh, and exciting and kind of like a celebration, but also a completely new experience. Um, and that is like, that's where culture can actually create an affect. That's where culture can actually like push things forward um, and kind of break out of, you know, this this capitalist mode that that we're in. I completely agree with that. Um, I really like too that just by letting these people talk and talk themselves into circles that that he's showing you how full of shit so many people are and they're able to do that <laughs> just by speaking. And it, whereas I think a lot of movies would be trying to make their point so outwardly. Uh, um, I don't know if that's the right word. Uh, but he's able to do it just by letting people, you know, these people speak and he's able to represent so many different ideas. And that was something that we were talking about off, off mic, um, just how well this gets movie making in general in a way that doesn't really focus on the actual making of the movie. It's mm -hmm. just a bunch of annoying conversations with annoying people going in a circle. <laughs> and, and I think that that's really kind of, nailed perfectly in the dinner party scene which is maybe my favorite one of my single yes. favorite moments in any movie yeah. ever is just how it's almost like a it, it's just going in circles and circles and then when the music hits it becomes like a dance of just like again very annoying but exciting conversations and it just every film set i've been on and again like i said earlier uh i haven't been on many but just like stuff that my friends have made and everything that's the takeaway that I always have from filmmaking is there's just a lot of sitting around and talking and I've never seen something nail that so perfectly. And it's just, it's really, it's really exhilarating to get all these points of view and, and feel like they're real realized people that none of them feel like they're acting. None of it feels like it was written on a page for them to say, it's really exciting. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I felt the same way with that scene in particular, just as an aside, you know, there's lots of things we've all mourned um, losing over the last two plus years with the pandemic being what it is and our lives changing drastically. I haven't like mourned a whole lot of like, oh, I miss this or that because I've mostly just been in a constant state of trauma and fear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this speaks to the the sort of capacity of Asaeus in shooting this dinner scene. We paused the film briefly and I looked at Aaron and I said, I miss dinner parties <laughs> <laughs> because there's, he captures something in, in that, you know, in that scene, that's exactly what you're talking about. It's not anything like exciting on paper per se, but watching it, it felt so it felt so realized. It felt so real. I felt very much like I was there. I, for the first time in a very long time, was like, oh, I miss this. I miss like just talking to people and like asking questions and hearing different ideas and like moving from one part of the table to the next or whatever. Um, that's a scene that would have totally been like either overly produced or a nothing scene and he manages to do it in such a way that's like so candid and real that it is at once effortless and also incredibly intoxicating yeah and it, it's it it really is a beautiful portion of the film yeah and what you're talking about too just how um 
just it you feel like you're there there's so many moments of just like even away from all the themes in the film and you know the commentary it's making it just nails like specific feelings of you know nervousness and exhilaration like i i love the moment when um zoe is talking i i never remember the the character's name but she's talking to uh the woman in the kitchen and they're mm-hmm. talking about uh maggie and you know she's saying you know she that she likes her and everything and then maggie comes around the corner with another friend with like two bottles of you know wine in her hand and it just that moment has like lived in my head forever it's such a small moment and it doesn't matter to the film but it just really like i we've all had those moments where you know you're at a party and you know you're maybe you're interested in somebody and then that person comes around the corner and there's like this jolt of electricity and you get like nervous and excited at the same time and it's just again it has nothing to do with the themes or you know the commentary is just such a like that that dinner party could just be a short film on its own and i think it would be yes. more exciting than anything i've ever seen it just he, he, there's so many specific feelings that i just kind of want to like bottle up and that scene does yes mm. totally yeah, there's so much energy in that. And then, you know, like you, Brandon, I've, I've been on a handful of friends like film sets before. <laughs> and I think you're right in that it captures a lot of that uh, monotony of of it, you know, that that sort of disregard and, and uh, sort of dropping of any pretense. You're you're sleeping in a corner or you're, you know, or taking uh, pages for for tomorrow's calls <laughs> in your mouth as you're like carrying something heavy. And and all of that just feels so vividly realized it feels so animated and electric and it's something we we so rarely see you know part of that being of course i think um Asaius's, uh, insistence on all of this sort of improvisational quality to it the way he he had to m- sort of do this kind of guerrilla work of shooting things uh quickly and and without multiple takes and and just sort of letting things live and breathe and just interesting to think of the camera crew and and the the crew of the film directly behind the camera capturing this sort of meta film within a film <laughs> being identical to one another and working in these sort of similar orbits, just one in front of the other. Yeah. And I, we were talking earlier before we started recording about how he gets kind of pegged as somebody who's like up his own ass with, you know, things he's thinking about. And I, I guess that's probably true, but th- there is a pretentious, I think that there's a pretentiousness anytime you try to talk about intellectual industries, you know, I, in, in his one of his more recent movies nonfiction, he does it with like the the um literary industry and so i think that that's like that in the film industry that's not something like everyday people aren't talking about but i think the ways in which he shows it is so unpretentious and well realized and i just really appreciate that like we you know you're mentioning how well realized all the running around feels but i also love when they watch the dailies there's just no preciousness in staying around and there's no preciousness about the film set itself. Everyone's just trying to get the hell out of there because it is just a job at the end of the day. You know, Mm -hmm. someone has a movie to be at, you know, there's the dinner party to get to. And I just like that in most movies about making movies, there's just this like import on this is the film set and, you know, here's the camera crew. And it's like, you're seeing the movie being made. And in this, it just shows that these are just everyday people running around trying to live their lives. And it's just, it's really refreshing to me. Yeah. He doesn't fetishize the process of, of making films at all. And instead what he's interested in, and I think this is what ties sort of like the dinner party scene to the film set and 
and all the other places that this film goes, he's not interested in the process of making the film. He's interested in the people that make the film and all of the experiences and histories and ideas that they bring to this project that end up oftentimes influencing the very thing itself. Um, and, and also can influence, you know, like what happens, um, with the people involved. Like there are things that transpire that make me wonder like, Oh, like if, you know, Maggie hadn't found out that Zoe was into her and if that hadn't like maybe that made her uncomfortable and maybe that's why she was so ready to leave or there's no answer right but it is it is really Asaius emphasizing the people and the different like histories that are brought to a project and not the process of making the thing you enjoy Paris yes I like it but I haven't seen much of it. You know, we're always working. And uh, René is okay. Uh, I mean, he's nice with you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's different, yeah. <laughs> and what about the part? Oh, that's fun. You know, it's like a cartoon character. It's fantasy. Yes, but a serious cartoon. Yeah, well, especially René. He's dead serious. No. That's it. It's warm. And Zoe? Are you friends with Zoe? Oh, yeah. Uh, she takes care of me and I think she's a great person. Yes. She makes very good costumes. Mm, yeah. Do you like your costume? Yes. Zoe told me you want to buy it. Oh. <laughs> you really want to buy it? Is it true? <laughs> because if you don't buy it, I will buy it. Well, it's not your size. <laughs> I can have it fixed. I like latex. Latex? <laughs> latex? Like plastic. Oh, rubber. Yes, rubber yeah. also. It's very sexy. Mm -hmm. Do you like girls? Girls? Yes. My my point comes back again when we talk about someone like Asaius being pretentious or up his own ass, which is there's such a, a lack of cynicism to the way that he's exploring so much of this and such like a curiosity about it. You know, it's not making grand statements. And I think the movie remains so resonant as like a postmodern text because of its avoidance of easy answers about art and expression that make it f more fundamental like each year that goes by. And I'll make a quick comparison and full, full caveat to this, the movie that I'm going to talk about, I saw while I was in a feverish stupor in the midst of recovering from COVID. So <laughs> who knows? Um, but, but my, my opinions on it seem to be uh, reflected in a lot of other people who have seen it sober and, and, uh, un un unencumbered by, by sickness, by disease, by disease. Um, but I, I recently watched, uh, the Judd Apatow movie, the bubble on Netflix, <laughs> which is a sort of meta commentary on both the COVID pandemic and movie making and the way those two things have sort of functioned since the start of, of this whole ordeal. And you put that movie up against something like Irma Vep and you tell me which one is the more pretentious and, uh, sort of disaffected and, and, uh, shitty of the two. And, and, 
yeah, I, I think there's your answer right away. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's, that's good. I, I like that you brought that up because it, that also reminds me of, I think just based on, you know, the way he does bring up the Batman franchise. And then later on in the series, he brings up uh, the, the, the silver surfer thing. Um, mm-hmm. I think there is, I, I, there are clues to, I think how he feels about this stuff, but it's never set in stone and it's never telling you how to feel. And it's never, it's never putting the onus on the audience, which I like. Um, and, and I wrestle with that too, that this complete side tangent, but I do, I do have a frustration with modern audiences and what they choose to seek out. But I mean, I, you, you can't yell at people to see other things. That's not going to make them yeah. want to see other things. And I like, <laughs> I, I like that he doesn't really do that. Whereas something like what you're mentioning, the bubble I haven't seen, but it re- does remind me of one of the things I, I've hated the most. I, I hated the movie to begin with, but uh, Adam McKay's vice. And at the end, there's a stinger <laughs> scene where he basically in, almost yells at the screen and yelling at audiences, stop paying attention to Fast and Furious, pay attention to politics. And it's like, shut up. Like, just please. Yeah, just, you can and, do both. <laughs> yeah. And so you're, it's just funny how something seen as popular, you know, filmmakers like Adam McKay and Judd Apatow are seen as populist and, and accessible when, like you said, I do think they're much more pretentious and cynical than anything Asayas is doing. But because he's making art films, there's like kind of a knee jerk reaction and it's, that's frustrating. It, and, and I mean, I don't want to, I, I could spend the next hour railing against Adam McKay, which I don't want to do, but um, <laughs> he, he's a very frustrating filmmaker to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, what I love about what you're saying, Brandon is like, it's this idea that in order for something to be populist finger quotes, um, that has to mean it's like, accessible by the most people for the most people, right? Which isn't actually what populism is about at all. Um, and, and, and I think like in that conceit of a movie being finger quotes populist, what we see happening, uh, every day with movies and, and a lot of other media is it, it necessarily empties out the ideas in the thing because it has to meet every consumer market segment that there is. It, it can't be something generative or antagonistic because it has to be liked by the most people. Um, and that is not at all what, what like we know populism to be from a, from a political and material understanding. And what I think Asayas is doing is actually deeply populist in the sense that he is making something that challenges the status quo. He's making something that is subversive against the sort of like capitalist mode of consumption and, and, uh, and idea making and image making that is, you know, as I said previously, that's more revolutionary than, uh, just making something that everyone likes, right? He's I, not pretentious in that way. I totally agree with that. And I like that, again, you can probably glean what he feels about certain things if you just follow the through line of his work. But at the same time, the conversations in his movies feel so well realized that it doesn't feel like a writer taking their ideas. And I mean, I, I know that the conversations are people speaking his ideas. So I mean, there is like, you have to have that understanding. But it never feels like it's something that you that you're listening to and being lectured 
about. Whereas I think a lot of movies now, especially a lot of movies that are praised now, I've said this on Twitter a million times and I'm sure people are sick of it, but I feel like so many movies read as if the writer took their their Twitter drafts and just emptied it into a movie. Yes. And, and yep. it just it like it just beats you over the head. And again, I'm I'm not someone who's when I say that, I always get worried that I'm going to get lumped in with reactionary people who are like, movies shouldn't be political. And that's never what I mean. I think they should be political, but I think it should be in a way that doesn't feel like you 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 want an applause at the end. And, yes. and, and it's just so frustrating to see so many movies lately that get praised. And there's one that, and I, I feel so bad about this uh, the, the, because the writer follows me on Twitter, but the new Scream movie is something that I just like, exemplified everything i hate right now where it's just like it <laughs> it was made for twitter and it was made for it was just it, they're, they're preaching to people that already agree with them and then the people that see that go you know now that's a movie and it's like is it though there, there's nothing challenging or exciting about this and there's just so many movies now that get get this kind of like wow this is speaking to the moment and then you watch it and it's like no it's speaking to you it's not really yes yep and yeah, I'm kind of rambling now making the same point, but yeah. Um, no, no I, that's totally, this is a conversation that we've had several times yeah. on, on the show. We, I w- we are in ostensible leftist sort of like pop culture movie podcast that I, I think if you follow me and, and Carly are antagonistic to most like <laughs> leftists who watch movies and talk about movies online right. Yeah, um, because of this very thing. Well, it's, we were talking about this with Ricky and Chris from the 30 years later podcast when we had them on to talk about the beautiful uh, Todd Salon's film happiness. We were lamenting that in a lot of films today, ideas are coming to you fully digested, right? Like there's no, you don't have to do any chewing. It's just baby birded (laughs) down your gullet and you sit back and you receive it and you go, that tastes good. And then you move on with your life, right? You're not like an active part of like what Asaya says in an interview of filling in the blanks of the film. There are no blanks. He had this quote that I wrote down because I am fucking obsessed with it. He says, movies need blanks. It's the space you give to the audience so that they can appropriate the film and transform it to suit their own imagination, their own desires, their own ideas. There's only art when there is a dialogue between the artist and the viewer. And that's an idea that's been around in art making for literally millennia, um, all the way back to carving bodies out of out of marble, um, that, that there is a responsibility on the part of the artist to leave room for the viewer to complete the work. Um, and that just doesn't happen anymore. Right. And to that point and not to go off on it, I mean, I don't know how far you guys mind me going off topic. Please in tangent, of yeah. tangent all the way. I'm sure you've seen me tweeting a lot about Michael Bay over the last year. And yes, it drives me nuts how people approach him. And I know that there's a lot of people who ostensibly agree with us who find his films grating and annoying and, and everything. And that's fine. Um, I know, uh, Someone you've had on your show a few times, Bill Ryan, someone who was writing I love, he hated Ambulance. I was reading his thread and I was like, okay, I get it. I mean, it, <laughs> but so I do get like, there are criticisms to be made, but but the ones that I keep finding the most, it, and, and it's 
been the criticism against Bay for decades now. And, and I find it such a regressive way to look at his movies is that he's so rah-rah America gung-ho. But when you actually sit and watch his movies, I don't think that there's easy answers the way a lot of a lot of film making more popular for like the Marvel movies give you. And the one that I watched recently that kind of, I think fits into with, with the quote that you just read was 13 hours. I avoided that movie for a while because I was like, Oh, it's Bay doing Benghazi. I already know what this is going to be. And, and uh, my friend, I I don't know if I'm sure you guys know him, Liam O'Donnell. Uh, Mm -hmm. He had a whole thread where he was watching 13 hours recently and I was reading his thread and I was like, Oh, I really need to give this a chance. And when I watched it, like, yes, there is a love for the troops in that movie, but there's also, it to me, it was one of the most anti-war films I've ever seen. I couldn't believe how unsentimental that movie was. And I think that there's just this idea that when challenged, people kind of push back on it. And it just, it's frustrating because the more I watch someone like Bay, the more I realize that he's... All he's doing is showing you a mirror of what the world is like and not mm-hmm. giving you easy answers. And I think I think that that's where a lot of criticisms come against him. And I think, again, that was a total side tangent, but I think it kind of fits into your quote about giving the audience blanks and letting them fill them out. And I've become much more appreciative of Bay as a filmmaker over the last couple of years than I ever have been because I think there is a masculine idiocy to some of his movies and which i also appreciate just from like a (laughs) just like a base level but but i think he's (laughs) a very challenging filmmaker and i think he's seeing a lot in the world that's like fucked up the same kind of things that i'm seeing that are fucked up and i just think that he and i have different ideas on who's going to save us from those things but yes but yeah that was again total side tangent but i think the conversations this movie's having kind of fit in with that in some weird way <laughs> completely agree 100%. we just watched pain and gain for the first time earlier this year oh, and if I you would... ever had any any reservations about whether or not michael bay knows about his legacy as a big dumb action like muscular movie kind of guy like that one is a complete uh just sort of like dissection of all the things that he's right. been working with and all of those kind of conceits of americanism and and muscles and action and it's it's brilliant i love that movie and then you have ambulance which is like ostensibly just like a a chase movie but at the heart of it there's a deep-seated hatred for the institutions within america i almost said it there's a deep Mm -hmm. hatred of america which i don't think there is (laughs) because i don't think bay could ever hate america but i think he is so hateful of institutions like everyone's like oh this is a pro cop movie and then you watch it and i was like is it though (laughs) like it seems like he hates the cops he hates medicine like not medicine but he hates big medicine and he's just very angry and that's a very angry movie about how we treat our people and it's just it's so funny watching that and then you hear like oh he's a big dumb bro filmmaker and i just like it doesn't always square for me in in a lot of ways and but at the same time i do get it when you watch his movies there is he is a big dumb bro like but <laughs> but he's also not <laughs> what I, I guess what i'm saying is he's he's the uh, olivia he's the american olivia say olivia say <laughs> <laughs> he's saying a whole he, lot and not giving you easy answers <laughs> yeah i think that's totally fair and i also think like it's it's a mistake to assume that he hasn't 
evolved in some way as a filmmaker, right? Like, I don't know that I necessarily watch Armageddon and think like, oh, he's giving us so much to like think about. Right, like, I right. think that movie is pretty what it is, yeah. right? But I do think that especially as I've seen his work from the last 10 plus years, I think he his political perspective has shifted. He has become much more distrustful of the institutions. As you note, we know that there is a large swath of conservatism that the, the whole identity is based on mistrust of the American institutions while at the same time feeling um, a responsibility and uh, an onus to be deeply patriotic and, and right. to love your country. And those two things can exist and do exist in this particular um, political swath. There is this question that Assayas asks, which is like, you know, what is the role of a filmmaker um, within this landscape of movie making, both in sort of like an insular context within French cinema, but also more broadly um, on, on the global stage. And I don't think he's necessarily giving us an answer, but he is giving us ideas of what that could look like mm. in the form of Vidal um, in us considering Assayas himself um, and also in the character of Jose Morano Moreno. One of the one of the two. I think it's Morano, but I, I can't. Morano. I'm not certain. Um, there he is asking the question, right? Like, what what is the responsibility? Do I even have a responsibility as a filmmaker to anyone or anything, or can I just make art? Um, and and I think like when people you know ascribe certain responsibilities or like mindsets or problems to a director like Michael Bay or whomever that kind of misses the point, right? Which is like the bigger question is like, well, why do we think he needs to be X, Y, and Z? And why do we think the films need to say a certain thing? And why, why are you uncomfortable with a, a filmmaker having a, a more conservative perspective? It, um, and that's not to say that I'm, I'm championing, you know, fascist propaganda <laughs> but i don't think that's what michael bay is making for right. the record <laughs> and and it's funny that you say why should they do this because it always brings me back to you know the the endless mcu and scorsese debate and you have the people who wrongly say you know oh he only makes violent gangster movies which isn't true but i always in the back of my head i always think to myself like well what would be wrong with that even if he did <laughs> like you, right. you're not you're not giving me a reason why that's wrong you're just saying that so but uh, again that's neither here nor there really, but it's just, it's funny. Um, and I think Assayas almost does give us an answer with what kind of filmmaker he thinks he should be, if only because the film ends with Renee's cut and it's just like, that's like the stamp. Like, And and I love that. I love that that's how the film ends is just this silent experimental thing that's more evocative, more exciting than anything anyone's hand-wringing about in the movie, including Renee himself. Renee thinks what he made sucks and it's and maybe it does who knows but i i think it's the most exciting way to end that movie yeah it's the very like deconstruction of the thing that he felt was empty right devoid of of all of his sort of charges and all the ideas that he wanted to bring to it you know he he saw this kind of soulless expression in it um there's a, a really brilliant scene in the movie 
when he's had sort of like a psychotic break and he's heavily sedated. The police have shown up um, and Maggie comes to his house and he is talking about this sort of like self-loathing that he has, this this highly critical voice in his head who's telling him uh, that he's doing this thing wrong, that he's changing things for the worse from uh, Fayyad's original Le Vampire. And he he remarks and says, this is just empty images. It's images about images. Um, there's nothing here. There's no soul. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, in seeing that kind of like blank canvas and ripping it to shreds and scratching it and stamping it, he ends up making one of the most profound and memorable like statements in the entire movie. Right. And I, I also think some of that ties back to Maggie Chung's celebrity because so much of that final scene is just close-ups of her face and i think that there's Mm -hmm. just something so i don't really have a point here i just think that there's something so profound about just her face i i don't really know what it is but it it's just ending on like that is just she there's just something to that which i haven't fully parsed out yet but yeah hi renee hi renee i repeat to see you I must speak to you. You know, I'm not angry with you. I am angry with myself. You know, it, it just imagines no soul, my foot. Feuillard, at the right eye, at the right distance. If you change the distance, everything is fucked up. It just imagines about images. It's worthless. You know, again, I have this idea of you in this part, in this costume. I thought it was very exciting. No. It's like a fantasy. That's desired, and I think it's okay because that's what we make movies with. You think you are at the core of the thing, but in fact, you are just in the surface. But um, if you feel it, you're inside, you're not on the surface. You feel it? Mm-hmm. I feel nothing. Everything is fantasy, it's deceptive. But it's just a part and I'm playing a part and she's fun, I enjoy playing her. It's like a game. No, it's not a game. It's very important. Your mother has no flesh, no blood. She's just an idea. How can I be interested in an idea? You you mentioned in uh, in like a Twitter post that I saw of yours when you were rewatching this movie something that um, I hadn't quite considered, but but should have been obvious, I think, which is uh, that this is kind of a, a note that uh, Asayas is leaving to himself about his feelings towards Maggie Chung. Uh, as an artist and also just as a person, uh, you know, uh, in in real life, metatextually, he and Maggie Chung were married from 1998 to 2001. So this collaboration did eventually lead to uh, a real life romantic endeavor. Um, but throughout the film, you can see characters like Renee and Zoe reckoning with their own relationship to her and their infatuation with her and her magnetism. Uh, and then the film does the same, and all these close-ups seem to just have this this obsession, something about her that is 
uh, intangible and, and inarticulable that, that nonetheless is there that we all sort of feel. And I think it's made even more profound by the fact that she's essentially disappeared from public life. She shows up once every couple of years. And it's it's sad mm-hmm. because I think, I, I don't know. I mean, this isn't like a, a hot, hot take, I, I don't think. But I think that there's a case to be made that she's maybe the greatest actor to ever live. And it's just sad that, you know, when you watch this movie now, there's just something so... Uh, prescient or prescient about how she's so indelible to this movie and to the film industry at large. And then she disappears at the end and she's disappeared Mm -hmm. from film now. And it's just, it's sad in a way. And it's also, I, I, the, the tweet that you're mentioning, Aaron, um, where I said that it feels like he's writing a love letter to her and also writing an open letter to himself asking why, it, I don't think he ever comes up, up with an answer, but I think the why could be that there's like something mystifying about her. Even when she's doing comedy, I don't know if either of you have seen Police Story, the Jackie Chan movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's, yeah. Even in that, she's playing like the damsel in distress girlfriend who's always yelling at him. But there's something so like you see her and you're just like, it, it's just exciting. Like it, I, I don't know where what it is about her, but she just feels intrinsic to like film in general to me you're bringing up something that Asayas mentions himself in the interview that Aaron shared with me that I keep referencing where he talks about um Kenneth Angor and and an essay that he wrote about him and Asayas is in this interview talking about how Angor believed in this idea that actors have like this sort of like metaphysical magic that they bring with them to films and that um and that when they're in a role they're playing the role yes but what they are bringing to the film is something that exists outside of them um that you can't even really articulate but you feel this is also something he said of Jean-Pierre Layard where he's he's talking about this man and he's saying like you know, I would have uh, I would have people on set ask me, well, what's the shot? And all I would tell them is like, just follow Jean-Pierre. Uh, like, <laughs> d- that's all we need to do. If we do that, like, we'll be fine. Um, and I'm I'm rambling, but you're making me realize, too, that that Maggie is very much that right, that she is this this uh this Angorian idea of an actor. She is um, a person who brings something else, brings sort of a magic um, to the role and and just to her presence in a movie that isn't written in. It's not scripted. It's not architected in any way. It's there because it exists in and around her. Um, and that, I think, is what we've lost um, when we talk about this question that Asaias asks which is what is a movie star and what's definitely, happened to the movie star. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Because I think that there's like a warmth and like almost comfort when like j- just follow, when he says, just follow him. This is someone who, if you, if you're French, you know him automatically, but if you like have watched a lot of French cinema, he's been there since he was a child. And mm-hmm. so um, he's someone that's just like, you see him and you're like, okay, I know who this is. Like I'm in safe hands. Same thing with Maggie Chung. And I just don't think that that exists I think there is something to be said for the movie star. And I think 
that's part of the reason why Top Gun's doing so well, aside from just being a great yeah. movie. I think Tom Cruise is the last face that you see on screen that isn't tied to IP. I mean, well, Top Gun is IP, so is Mission Impossible. But you get what I'm saying. Like, you, yes. when, you, when you see, like, I don't know, Captain America, you know, you're seeing Captain America. I don't think most people care that that's Chris Evans. And I think that that's showing by light years lower box office return that people don't care that Chris Evans is voicing him. And I yep. think, but with someone like Tom Cruise, you see that face and you're just like, that's someone that I want to watch. And I, and it, and it makes me sad because, you know, there is something superficial about movie stars. I think the way we obsess over them is crazy. I mean, we, we can go into all of that, but at the end of the day, that it, it's just sad when you watch how they've all but disappeared. Uh, I mean, it's fun working with Jackie too. It's, it's completely different. There's such big budget movies and you feel, they make you feel like you're a big star. And, but it's just tough on me because I don't fight. I'm not a good fighter myself. <laughs> so it's a little bit difficult when I have to do, do the actions. And you work also with John Woo? Uh, no. Oh, Bullet in the Head. I think it's a great, great film, you know? And uh, you would like working with him? I think he's a great director and he's very good. But you know, he's so masculine. I think he's better with men. <laughs> I think it's a great director, very strong. He's genius, you know? Uh -huh. I, I think it's the best one. It's very strong, no? It's uh, powerful, yes. Yeah. And uh, what do you think of uh, French cinema? Uh, actually, we don't get to see a lot of the big... I mean, a lot of the French films don't come to Hong Kong. And maybe... The bigger films we will see with big stars like Alan Delon, oh. Catherine Deneuve, and, you uh, know. And uh, do you saw uh, some movie of René Vidal? Yes, on tape. And uh, do you like them? Uh, yes, I looked at the images and it was very interesting. The images were very strong. Yeah, I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you laughing? Because you're being polite. Oh, no, 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 I'm not. It's a boring cinema. It's typical of French cinema, you know? Only to please yourself, not for the public. It's only for the intellectuals, you know, for the elite. I mean, I think there are different audiences who like different films, and there's nothing wrong with that. No, René Vidal, it's a past. It's an old cinema. Public doesn't want his film. No success, you know? I don't know. It's, but now it's, it's, it's over. It's finished, I hope. Uh, all of this is leading me into what may be the most alienating and distancing conversation uh, that we'll have on this podcast, <laughs> which is a little bit about um, not just the movie stars, but but Asayas in his regard and, and his writing um, and Cahiers du Cinema and, and sort of the history of, of French filmmaking as well. Um, so Jean-Pierre Liaud's presence here, I think, has in itself some some very interesting kind of like meta commentary uh, as well as you mentioned brandon he's been a a notable actor in french cinema since childhood when he starred in truffaut's the 400 blows and his character antoine Danel winds up uh being in I, th I think five different works of truffaut's over the years all the way up to like the the 70s yep um and of course truffaut is part of this legacy of french new wave filmmakers godard rene uh, romer all of these guys who got their start basically like picking fights with Andre Bazan in this <laughs> cinematic journal, Cahiers du Cinema, right? Um, which Asayas would go and write for in the 80s before he became a filmmaker in his own right. 
what I find so interesting about the way Assayas is approaching approaching this is he's he's literally bringing this this figurehead, this this person that everybody recognizes from the French New Wave in as his filmmaker who's having this identity crisis, not sure of how to make French cinema new again, um, and using him sort of as this vector through which to explore these ideas. Uh, you know, the French New Wave directors seem to, you know, pick this fight with Bazan in like the pages of of Cahiers by starring this sort of auteurist theory around all of these Hollywood filmmakers, around the Hitchcocks, around the Howard Hawkses, all of, all of these guys. Um, and coming up with their own expressions and very definitive answers to like how film could pave a way forward and started challenging those rules that Hollywood was setting about formal filmmaking. It's interesting that a generation removed, Assayas is having the same conversation, but he's sort of throwing his hands up a little bit here. He's not coming <laughs> to such a definitive like, this is the way, the way a Godard did, the way that a Truffaut did. Um, and instead just making this postmodern text that is essentially just a giant question mark yeah um that that's really funny too that these conversations still have to be had but like you said the people originally having it were like railing against the system and Assayas is more just like is this the system and should i just coexist in it and it, it's mm-hmm. not a passive uh perspective i don't think Although I've seen, I, I have seen people kind of say that about him. I don't think that whether he's throwing his hands up or not, I don't think it's passively. I think he's still struggling in a lot of ways to reach a conclusion. But I, I do think that there's something vital there. And I think there's something vital about, even though Maggie Chung seems to rise above a lot of the, the, um, just the, existential crises all these people are having she still has one of her own in the hotel when she wears the cat suit and Mm -hmm. tries to figure out who she is and and i think that that scene is perfect kind of a perfect representation of everything Isaiah is saying about himself about the industry about her because there's almost like a reckoning with who she is as a movie star because that's the closest we get to see her doing action aside from the clip that they watch of heroic trio and i think that that's a perfect way to kind of blend her persona as an actress where again i I don't know if i'm making a a great point but but i think that there's a lot of what Isaias feels about himself in that scene maybe maybe not no i completely agree you're totally right we we should talk about this scene because if if there is a scene i think that this is the one that is often uh extracted from the film as as being kind of one of the most fundamental, most striking moments in the entire movie. Uh, it happens right after Maggie leaves Renee's house after his psychotic break. It's probably the thing that like is almost like smack dab right in the middle of the movie, like right at right the halfway point where Maggie is in the cat suit. She's in her hotel room. Uh, Tunic, Song for Karen by Sonic Youth is blasting in the hotel. She's rolling around in the bed, restless. And she finally leaves the comfort of her of her domicile and sneaks around the hallways of this hotel into a woman's room who is having a lover's quarrel naked on the bed over the phone and steals a necklace from her 
several necklaces, <laughs> like yeah. a whole handful of jewelry. Just, yeah, or like one giant one, but it, it is like it's it's just a bunch of shiny objects that she takes from her. Um, all the while, the latex is like squeaking, <laughs> and you know she's she's kind of running about the the hallways and and the staircases, and finally winds up on the roof. Rain pouring down, floodlights on, throws them over the edge of the roof. It's and it's such a an aesthetically just like visceral scene. It's one of those things that kind of shakes up the entire movie and shakes you awake. Um, but I think you're right, Brandon. Also presents a lot of different things at once here a, a crisis for for maggie and that she's reckoning with and also sort of uh i don't know like a a manifesto of sorts for Asaius <laughs> and the things he's trying to achieve as well i i also like in that scene too how a kind of there, there's always like a yearning with him for trying to find yourself and wondering if you know the life you have is the one that you want and getting to live a fantasy a little bit, because I think that that carries through in a lot of his work. I think, you know, Maggie Chung in this seems so sure of herself, but in that scene, that's the closest we get to seeing her being unsure of herself. And then, you know, he has a movie boarding gate with Asia Argento where she's a sex worker who becomes an assassin. And there's like a duality there of like, she, the, the line begins to blur of like, what, what she's still selling herself no matter what and and then in personal shopper you have Kristen stewart who you know is leading like this mundane life of helping celebrities but then when the celebrities are gone she gets to live a life in their clothes as being a celebrity and i think that that movie is brilliant and in the fact that you know using Kristen stewart in that way is such a like one of the last movie stars and getting to see that whole dynamic but yeah uh, i think that there's just a really interesting thread that he weaves throughout his movies of like just this duality of who these people are and what their personas are i guess yes 100 percent. i think like this question of or the 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 interplay between like maggie as a human and maggie as an object is something that the movie explores a lot but is kind of like put in a blender in that hotel scene the cat suit is also an interesting kind of object in and of itself in the way that it presents maggie and her body and her femininity right it's one of these things that at once is like exaggerating curvatures and is meant to be kind of sexual and and uh evocative and it also manages to in a lot of these scenes that we see in in wide shot or when she's sort of silhouetted by the darkness and the floodlights makes her just this kind of outline right the blackness of it just sort of almost seems like it's it's a void that's been punctured in the frame and i like that kind of duality that that suit uh represents that it, that it evokes as well you know the sort of uh empowerment of it as as making her a sexual feminine object while also sort of erasing her as well which kind of plays into that exoticizing thing that we've talked about already it's also very literally bondage it is literally bondage right yeah. which is like then you can start to ask the questions around like well when she's like an actress and she's being objectified like is that a kind of bondage but then when she wears the suit and it's out it's sort of extra extra textual outside of the movie is she taking back her agency there's just like all these questions that come up even just with the cat suit itself which i think is really interesting and and going back to 
you know, Asaius and his thoughts on like this idea of the, the duality of, of the actor um, and the performer, he, um, he talks also about Musidora and how she was really this, um, this vanguard in, in filmmaking, not just because she was at the precipice of the medium itself, but also because she was an active participant in the character she was playing, that she sort of developed this idea of the cat suit and that she, you know, wrote about film and, and, uh, was a part of the production. And, and so he's talking about Musidora being this person who is at once this very recognizable face, this sort of image, this ghost, he calls her, this specter that kind of lives in cinematic history. And at the same time, an incredibly material presence, uh, a, a person that had uh, quite a bit of agency and um, and played an active role in the construction of her character. And there again is that duality of like, her as a person and also her as an actress, as a, as an image, as a celebrity. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that's a good point too, because it goes back to being in the hands of a face you recognize, but at the same time, the, the suit almost erases all of that to the point where he's zero zeroing in on that we're using these people as people to project ourselves onto and, yes. and I can't believe I never really made that connection, but that's so true. It's just like, and, and it's funny too, because there's so much in the movie, just as an aside, there's so much um, stress put on what the cat suit should be, what it should look like. And really, it's funny that 20, 25 years later in the show, <laughs> the director's reasoning for wanting to remake Irma Vep is that he finds cat suit sexy and that's like the only reason and it's just funny that 25 years later say this is like look i don't have a profound statement on the cat suit this time it's just i think it's hot <laughs> it's kind of hot, hot. Yeah. there's an interesting uh commentary on the cat suit in the in the uh series though as well in the first episode where uh alicia vikander's character is sitting down with the costume designer yes yeah. and he's deliberately uh thwarting the expectation of sort of the bondage stuff, the latex and the leather, because he claims so many actresses today, like Scarlett Johansson or, you know, and, and all of these characters who exist in the Marvel Cinematic Universe design their sort of like femme fatale cat suits, you know, still very flattering to the feminine physique, but leathered up and kind of masculinized. So he wants to do it in velvet, right? And make it something that's right. very soft and very like very almost sort of regressive in terms of like femininity, like without <laughs> that, like extra, like masculine quality to it. And I, I love the way he's still reckoning with and thinking about all of these things. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I shouldn't have said that he, he's only saying it's hot because he's definitely still reckoning with it. Um, but, but also just at a base level, like Maggie Chung looks great in in that cat suit. It's just no, it's absolutely. Hard to her design. body is incredible. <laughs> I I didn't want to be the one to say it, but <laughs> I didn't. It's you, all right. You just Carly like will a... always be the one to say it. I will always say okay, it. Good, she, cause... I mean, the the thing that's so wild about that costume is that it's like incredibly restrictive, right? But it also is this thing that makes you notice her the sort of curvature of 
of her body, like even more so it's, it's a, it's a confounding thing because it has this sort of suffocating quality. And at the same time, it also feels like it's like showing us more of her than we would get, even if we saw her naked. Exactly. And it's also funny how it, we never really truly pin down who these people are, who these movie stars are, because there's that point in the movie where Zoe's talking about how she wants to buy the cat suit from her and she and mm-hmm. and she chalks it up to well she clearly must be into kinky sex and uh, like maybe i can take her home but really from the scene in the hotel it seems like maggie wants to buy it because it gives her a sense of empowerment there's just to, and it's just it's really it's that's just like a fun little juxtaposition there with that where you know zoe is again is odysseizing her she doesn't really care about her as a person. She doesn't care about what her wants or needs are. She just thinks she can take her home. Yeah. There's another um, part in the film when Laura, who's the who's the secondary actress? Laura. Yeah. Laura. Yeah. When Laura is talking to H- Jose Moreno, um, who has said, I want you to play Irma. You know, Musadora is Paris. She's... She's an actress of the people. She's the working class. She's the slums. Like it shouldn't be a Chinese actress. I want, I want you to play her. Laura says, well, I'm challenged by this because I don't want there to be a rumor that I've like that I've orchestrated this whole thing to try to steal the part from her. Um, And she has this tiny little line that just kind of comes on as a flicker at the end of that sentence where she says, you know, rumors spread really fast uh, on a set. And just prior to that, we had been sort of immersed in a couple of examples of that where um, the woman who, who's the redheaded woman? Maite is her name. Maite. Maite is talking to um, Maggie and sort of telling her all these things about Zoe and saying like, she's a drug addict. She pushes drugs on set. I've had this problem with her before. Did she drug you? all these things shortly thereafter they're on set the next day. And um, there's this rumor flying around that Zoe did in fact take uh, Maggie home and that they slept together and that she drugged her up and whatever. And, and so when Laura says this thing about like, you know, rumors spread really fast, um, it is hinting at this thing that you're talking about, Brandon, which is like this kind of like, I don't know this this maelstrom of of like impenetrability that that exists like uh, around actresses and and actors and people that are involved in movies and how it's all just stories right that we don't actually really know the people um, and it's you know those candid moments where we see. Maggie in the cat suit or when she's sitting in the car and saying, you know, I understand Renee. I know exactly how he feels. Like those are the moments when we actually get to break through all of the the pretense. Right. And I think that that where some people see her as passive, I just see her as what you said, impenetrable. And I think that it's, you know, there, there's so much conversation around what this movie should be, what Irma Vep should be the character and so much conversation around um 
you know, Maggie's place in all of it. But then you see her and she's just completely at ease. And I just, I love that so much. I love that there's all these rumors flying and she's almost unbothered by it. You know, when, when she's being told, you know, oh, well, she, you know, Zoe gave drugs to somebody on the set of, a, of the last movie she was on. And she's like, well, she didn't do that to me. And she just like, doesn't care. <laughs> and and yep. it's just, I, I love that. I love that. I think being impenetrable is what makes her and other movie stars so exciting because again, yes, we project things onto them, but it's also, we'll never know what otherwise. And I just, I love that. But you, yeah, you brought up the Jose Morano scene again. And last night was the angriest I've ever been watching that scene. I don't know what it was, but I was just, <laughs> I, I think it's because it's just been years since my first watch of the movie and just like, frequent rewatches in in those years i've really kind of seen the actor maggie chung is and you know in the wong kar wai movies and then in the jackie chan movies and stuff like that um and so i've seen her range and everything and just how good she is and and i i know it's so silly to get mad at a fictional character but i just like it's so infuriating to hear the way he talks and not just because of the racism that he's saying, but the, what you brought up about how Irma Vep is like the embodiment of the French underground. There's this the fetish, fetishization of the poor that he's also adding on to it. And it's just that he's such yes. a hacky filmmaker. And it's like you see so many <laughs> of these filmmakers in Hollywood now trying to capture something in the zeitgeist of what they think liberal politics are or leftist politics are when really it's just shallow and forced. And it's just so... I, I don't know why I was so mad at that scene last night, but I was just like, I think it's because that's all movies are now in some way or yes. what he's fetishizing and what he's talking about. And it's all just lip service. And I was just like, <laughs> it was just funny. It was the most I've ever hated that character, but I was like, man, I just, I'm, <laughs> I'm so glad you're proven wrong by, by the final scene in this movie. <laughs> completely. Yeah, completely. Absolutely. He gets so angry too. Like I, I was kind of laughing at the scene this time around when we watched it most recently when he's asking like why why is maggie in this movie like someone explained to me and he's so furiously says we oui, mais pourquoi like he's like so <laughs> upset like yes i understand all the it should be self-evident but it's not to me what the fuck is going on here um and you know an, a, a, yet again another uh meta moment here so the actor who plays jose morano is an actor named Luke Castell, who also plays the director of the film within the film in Fassbender's uh, Beware of the Holy Whore, oh, the, yes. the movie that that uh, Assayas, uh attributes as being the key inspiration to this film in, in terms of cinema about cinema. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, he's, he's also in that one. So. I love that. <laughs> well, this comes back to the question of like, you know, pretentiousness around around movie making and and making movies about uh about movies right because we see that Murano who is um ascribing this sort of like populist posture to his endeavors right that that he's like interested in and focused on uh you know representing and speaking for the working class, as you say. Um, and that we see that he's not at all like uh, really in tune with those things in any way, right? Because he so easily dismisses 
uh, a Chinese actress and, and, uh, you know, doesn't want to make anything subversive and instead wants to just like, you know, really operate in this traditional mode. I think where we see uh, Asaias's perspective really come through is not just in the final film um, that Vidal makes being so interesting and exciting, but also that there's a small, there's a brief moment where we see inside Murano's apartment. Yes. And right. it's incredibly <laughs> pathetic. Yes. He's sort of slumped in his couch with his belly, uh, you know, sort of rolling out off of him. He's got like eight cats surrounding him. <laughs> the place is a mess and he's fallen asleep watching the original, um, Le Vampire series. Yeah. And I just like had this moment of being like, ah, uh, yes, that's, that's who you are. Mm-hmm. That's who you are. It's so crucial that the only time we see him regarding the original series is in reference to it, mentioning that he saw it 30 years ago at the Cinematheque one time. Uh, and then also him having fallen asleep right. while ostensibly studying it. And it's, I, I hate that I'm about to use this term so much, but I feel like he also kind of created the first girl boss because his big bold idea is to his big revolutionary idea for remaking arm of Ep is to put a pretty white lady at the center. And she's supposed to be the representation of like the streets and the underground and everything. <laughs> and it's just like, that's a thousand percent. And, and that, that's how far Hollywood's come now is that it's just like their bold idea is, you know, what can, what can be exciting and different? Oh, a pretty white lady. And it's like, Oh, cool. <laughs> like that's the new Thor movie. And everyone's, you know, yep. really excited. I mean, I know that that's based on something that happened in the comics. I've, I've read those comics before anyone ever yells at me, but at the same time, it's just like, <laughs> it's like that everyone's like, wow, this is a win for diversity. And it's just Natalie Portman who, who's been in a, the lead of a million <laughs> movies. And that's something that I think is so funny about the show um, is the silver surfer scene I keep referencing is uh, Carrie Brownstein plays her manager and she says to her, mm. you know, she says, well, uh, Elisa Vikander says, I don't want to, you know, play the girlfriend, like the damsel in distress of a superhero. And she's like, well, no, this is the interesting thing. You get his powers and you become silver surfer. And it's just so, it's such a like brutal commentary in that line. It's just yes. so funny. <laughs> but yeah, yes. like, yeah, it, it, that is a frustrating thing is that, you know, Again, I'm I'm rambling, but it's just that so many movies now is like the big bold idea is just instead of a white man, it's a white woman, and it's like, well, there's all kinds of other people, <laughs> and and you th- and you think you're doing like this empowering thing, and it's just really not, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. and even when we put people of color in those traditionally white white roles. We're not imagining a new role. Right. That's right. that's the other frustrating mm-hmm. thing, right? It's like, okay, so, you know, representation is important. Yes. But what about also making something totally fucking new? Yeah. What about like using that representation for a character that's never existed before for an idea that like hasn't been, you know, made in 80 different franchise uh, experiments one way or another? Like, that's also the frustrating thing for me is that even when we're we're operating uh, from a place of like uh, expanding the color palette, I should say of 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 casting, like we're not also then thinking of 
new modes of representation or 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 new characters. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You can't really be subversive or like uh you know antagonistic in any way when you're doing that, which I think is, you know, what a lot of us are frustrated with with the some of the films that are being made is like you know, we're in this churn of of neoliberal capitalism and things are being hollowed out left and right and it's depressing to see that we aren't meeting the moment um with art that is challenging and just back to Irma Vep I mean that's why I think this movie is uh dare I say it incredibly populist because it is forcing us to think about these things it's it's forcing us to have these conversations mm-hmm. and and to that point, I've seen a crit- and obviously the show isn't over yet, so who knows where it's going to go. But I've seen one of the criticisms I've seen pop up around the show is that, you know, he made this bold statement about how you know there's racism in the film industry, and that's why he cast Maggie Chung. One of the reasons he cast Maggie Chung, and then he's basically going back on what he said by having Alicia Vikander play that role but just to touch on the show briefly i think that it's kind of smart that he's doing that in some ways because he's and and hopefully he does comment on this maybe by the end i'll be proven wrong but it does feel like her casting is intentional because Mm -hmm. that's what would happen now and and i just i again i i think he's smarter than that and it's just it's been funny to see that criticism pop up and again that's neither really here nor there but i think it kind of tied in a little bit to what we're talking about is that i've seen people very angry that you know she vikander is playing this role now when i think that that's if if ever there were a filmmaker to do something like that intentionally i think it's him yeah Yeah. i think it's him and lana wachowski yes yes (laughs) yeah there i mean this conversation did come up and i i haven't seen these parts of of the series yet, but I think that there was an explicit remark in some review that uh, mentions that without running into spoilers, because I haven't seen it and it's brand new, uh, they do in some ways deal with this regard of uh, a, a woman of color playing the role rather than Alicia Vikander yeah. and why it's the case that she's playing playing the role. And I think that you're right, Brandon, where it's like the absence of an Asian woman, a black woman of, of representation, you know, so thoroughly as we see it in, in other modes of entertainment and, and media, the absence of that is the commentary, right? It, it, it is that, uh, you know, Anya Taylor-Joy and Florence Pugh are the only two actresses that exist in Hollywood right now. Right. <laughs> you know, and like I, that, that is what we have. Right. And, and Elisa Vikander is like, an Oscar winner. She, there was that one year where she was like in seven movies in one year. So it's yeah. like, it's very pointed and I love her. I think she's a great actor. Like she's one of my favorites working right now, but it's very pointed to cast someone like her in this role. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting to consider that, you know, in the last 25 years since, uh, Asayas made Ermavep, and he's sort of asking these questions about like the commercialization of the industry and big budgets and, you know, a more insular French cinema that is independent and wholly European and not American at all, um, that he's revisiting this property 
but on a streaming platform right. with a giant corporation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that's like good or bad necessarily, but it is interesting yeah. um, because there's part of me and this is where we come back to, to how postmodern all of this is. There is part of me that is like, well, isn't it really great that more people can be exposed to the ideas he's presenting in this project because it's on a streaming platform that has a monopoly, uh, <laughs> one of four, um, over you know all of our all of our captive uh, attention. Isn't that great? And then there's another part of me that's like, yeah, but is that what our only option is at this point? Is 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 that how we you know like educate and and radicalize people? Is it through the modes of of the capitalist structures like i don't have an answer but i have conflicted feelings about it which i think is important and i think assayas knows that right definitely because in this show it's funny because in interviews he's been really adamant that it's a show not a movie but in the show the renee in this in this version is insistent that even though he's making a show that it's a film and i think that that's so funny (laughs) because that's such a film twitter thing like that whole debate about is twin peaks to return a movie it's not but um it's just i think that that's (laughs) so funny that like i think you're right asayas does recognize that he recognizes the conversations that are being had and it's just i i I love that i i mean i I, i'm running out of anything intelligent to say other than i just love that (laughs) It's brilliant. Um, and, and even just in the little bit of the series I've seen so far, he is, like we said, already regarding all of these things that he was in the 96 version of Irma Vep. Um, one of the other things that I really, really love is the way that he's still bringing a, a political viewpoint into this sort of modern context in a very explicit way, which is it's very absence and sort of the apoliticism of modern celebrity. There's a really, really, really good scene where Alicia Vikander is promoting her previous sort of like blockbuster sci-fi action movie doomsday in the first (laughs) episode. And she's being asked by European critics, by these French critics at this junket, you know, like this, this movie resonated with a lot of people in Europe right now because of its anti-authoritarian politics because of its more populist sort of bent. Can you speak to that? Like, you know, I, 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 it seems like it's it's a message directed at particular uh, conflicts or international stages. And she does a really good job of walking around the question and giving a complete non-answer, right? Because of the because of the necessity of that apoliticism for the purposes of celebrity and and to be involved in this kind of because modern you, you, blockbuster you culture. You can't alienate your audience, I guess. And it, you'll fall into the yeah. trap John Cena did where he acknowledged Taiwan as a country. And then the next <laughs> yeah. day recorded a video that definitely felt like someone had a gun to his head off screen. Yeah. A thousand <laughs> one, percent. One of the most insane things that I've ever seen happen. <laughs> oh, it's incredible. But, you know, I mean, that that is, it, it just feels so real. Definitely. And, and, uh, you know, like you said, you know, Asayas inventing film Twitter or whatever, it is ripe with conversations to be had about it. And it's uh, kind of the legacy of, of film in the last 25 years and the ways in which uh, this is now an extension and expression of a new form, but also figuring out what, what came before it and what, what the landscape looks like overall. 
And I was nervous to even say that about the film Twitter thing, because I do agree with a lot of people that Twitter is in real life. And I, but I do think that that only applies to like the biggest blockbusters, like when there's somebody who has a controversy and, you know, we have these endless discussions of like, oh, well, this movie's going to bomb now. And then it makes a hundred million dollars. And it's like, because most people don't <laughs> care about that. But I think film as a medium, the conversation, unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess in some ways, because I've met so many great people through it has shifted to Twitter. And it does feel like everything that's happening in Irma Vep, the 1996 film, all those conversations are conversations we're having daily on Twitter. And, and, I go back and forth on whether that's a good thing. I mean, it's frustrating. You can't really <laughs> convey yourself in 280 characters. I know a lot of people have left Twitter, a lot of voices that I followed for years who I really like because they're fed up with it. And I totally get that. But I do think that there is some benefit to it because I think that as digital as the world has become, where else are you going to have these conversations and find like-minded people? Like I live in Pittsburgh and there's just, I, I don't know why I gestured as if anyone's going to see me pointing out my window. <laughs> um, Brandon is showing us pitch Pittsburgh right now to those listeners at home. In, in Pittsburgh, I think in some ways has a rich film history like George Romero and everything like that. But in other ways, it's frustrating because I have a hard time finding people here who share what I like about film and share like a deep, there, there's one art house here and it plays one movie mm. a week and and that's frustrating. And everyone that I love talking to, like people like you guys or like, uh, you know, people that I've met up with in New York, they all live on the two opposite coasts. And so as I guess the point I'm getting to, which I never thought I'd get to with this movie, is that as annoying and shitty as Twitter is, I think that there is some benefit for people meeting each other and having these annoying conversations like the ones happening in the d dinner party, because it, on some level it is keeping film discourse alive. And it's that, and I think that that's a, it's a medium that's dying. And so it's, mm -hmm. it was just funny watching it last night and seeing a lot of these conversations have always been happening. They were just happening in person, which is what I think the preferred way to do them is. But through various reasons, that can happen. And we are meeting people and having these like minded conversations. So I guess it is a good thing in the end, even though it always makes me want to rip my hair out. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Agreed. I think completely. that's a really lovely way to look at it. That's a very good sentiment. Yeah. Um, I, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are, we are, if nothing I'll else, we are, if nothing else, a platform for uh, catharsis wherever we can find it, you know? <laughs> so uh, I'm glad that we've arrived at Twitter kind of good, actually, uh, as a, as a byproduct of the conversation we've had today <laughs> about Irma Vep. Uh, but I think that that is uh, going to do it for our, our conversation here today. Um, Brandon Streisnig, uh, I'm so thankful that you came on the show. Thank you for a fantastic conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I was nervous because, like I said off off mic, um, I there's like a I think a view of me, whatever view people have, not to inflate my ego, of like only talking about action movies, and so I was a little nervous that you know, I wouldn't have anything to say. And maybe there's going to be people who listen to this and go, what the fuck is he talking about this whole time? And that's fine. But I had a really good time talking about this. I really appreciate it. Oh, the feeling is completely mutual. This has like been the highlight of my week, if not weeks. This is the kind of stuff that we're, uh, that we're seeking out on Twitter potentially, right? Is, yeah. is having these kinds of conversations. Completely. And, uh, 
you know, I, I, I said it already to you, Brandon, to kind of fluff you up before the show. And I'll say it again, which is uh, I I just always admire your perspective on film. Uh, I, I think I've even said this publicly that like of, of all the people on that health side and that I interact with, you're at the very top of my list of people who just come sort of uh, w- without any pretense, with just like a genuine curiosity and love for the medium. Uh, and you always inspire me in the way that I watch movies and approach them and think about them. And so it's it's just such a pleasure to finally get you on the show and have you talk about maybe one of the greatest movies of the 1990s. Oh, that really means the world. And we should probably stop recording now because I'm going to start crying. <laughs> that, that was very kind of you to say thank you. <laughs> I, I mean it wholeheartedly and sincerely. Um, if you're not already following Brandon and reading Brandon, um, you should be. We will make sure to link to uh, his profile and, and ways for you to to find his work. But uh, Brandon, where where can people find you right away? Um, well, my name is very long and hard to say, but uh, it's my. T- I'm sure you guys will link my Twitter handle, but but uh, Twitter is probably the best way, and it's my Twitter handle is just my name with the vowels taken out. So <laughs> I, I made it years and years ago before I started writing, and now I realize it's kind of a hard way to direct people to me. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll we'll make sure to to link to it for for the ease there, and you know, if people want to try to solve it like a puzzle, they are welcome to. <laughs> uh, but Brandon, thank you so much again. Um, as always, you can follow along with us at Hit Factory Pod uh, if you would like to. You can subscribe to the show at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod for bonus biweekly episodes. Um, We would love to not clock in anymore at some point in our lives, so tell your friends. (laughs) Shout out to our capitalist overlords. We call them Linda and Jesse K. And we will catch you all the next time. Thanks, everyone. Very happy.